It's Tuesday, November 10th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool, Supernova, and Rule Breakers, Aaron Bush and David Kretzman. Thanks for being here, guys. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks. We got some earnings. We've got a warning from an apparel retailer. Shocking, I know. Shocking that an apparel retailer would issue a warning of some sorts. Uh, and we'll we'll go behind the glass to our man Dan Boyd, which we rarely do. But I think, given that the Guar concert was last night, I think yeah, just a, a check in with Dan is warranted. But let's start with um, let's start with Lionsgate Entertainment. Second quarter revenue down fourteen percent. And Aaron, they didn't just miss on profit; they missed big on profit. Please explain to me why this stock is up around four percent this morning. Because <laughs> sure. I I get that the final Hunger Games movie is coming. This is a bad quarter. Yeah, it was not a good quarter. Um, so <laughs> revenue and earnings both missed. A lot of their movies underperformed. Um, I think it's important to note that one of their larger movies for the quarter, Sicario, was actually pushed back a month. So that also kind of negatively affected it um, compared to what people were expecting. Um, and all of that sounds important, but I think it's important to recognize that, like, yes, Hunger Games movie is coming, Allegiant, which is part of the Insurgent franchise, is coming, and those movies are much bigger than a lot of these other smaller movies even thrown together. So, I think that's a big part. Then also, it's just important to recognize that the movie industry itself is pretty lumpy. And so, a lot of times, kind of the headlines that you read don't really tell the full story. And and one other piece of news, which is not really part of the operations, but um, was announced earlier, was that two other companies, Liberty Global and Discovery, they each acquired 3.4% stakes in Lionsgate, and therefore they get to supply one one member to the board of directors. And what these companies they, they each get, yeah each, get a director yeah each, yeah. yeah and and the main thing that both these companies have in common is John Malone. I was just gonna say <laughs> yeah. I hear Liberty Global, and I was just about to say, is this John Malone? This because is, this is John the Malone, master of content and oh, cable, yeah. you know. Yeah, so he's the puppet master, and I I really have no idea what he's going to do in this whole web that he has been creating, because there's also stars thrown into the mix and some other companies. Um, but it does not surprise me that we are seeing some more collaboration, and I would expect to see some more of it, maybe even M&A over time. Unlike some activist investors that we talk about on this podcast from time to time, your Bill Ackmans, your Carl Icons, John Malone really seems like someone who stays in his lane. He sticks to media and entertainment companies and mm-hmm. by and large his track record is pretty good so i mean you now i get it now i get why after again even taking into account it's a lumpy business and it really is i mean that's even when you go outside the united states and look at the economics because global box office is important but it doesn't mean the same thing in terms of actual dollars that that domestic mm-hmm. box office does but having someone like John Malone involved is is probably a, a bullish sign for Lionsgate. Yeah, I would definitely say so. And I think you know, as Aaron mentioned, you know, with the lumpy results this quarter, we have to remember when we're talking about quarterly results and earnings season, it's just a ninety day snapshot of a company. So realistically, for a lot of the companies, not a whole lot really meaningful to long term performance of the business is going to happen in ninety days. Of course, there are exceptions to that, but especially with uh, a, a company like Lionsgate, where you're putting out shows, movies, the, the timing really ma- matters with you know what your performance is going to look like. So you probably want to 
kind of lengthen that time horizon, you know, maybe look at a company like Lionsgate more on an annual basis rather than solely on a quarterly basis. And hope that whoever is heading up their uh, procurement of scripts stumbles onto another Hunger Games because that <laughs> that has been massive for that company. Yeah, they're pretty good at that though. Just for the sake of like my my mood and happiness, I hope Sicario doesn't become a new series. Man, that <laughs> is that, that is not a movie I ever want to see again. <laughs> it was well done, but it, it was very dark. You liked it though. It, for what it was, it was really well done, but it's the type of movie you see it once, you do not need to see it again. Yeah. That's yeah. by the way, as as we're we're closing in on Thanksgiving here in the United States. That's a fun question I like to throw out from time to time. What's the best movie you've ever seen that you never want to see again, or you certainly don't need to? And there are—I mean, there are some movies that are just like, "Wow, that was a really great film." I really hope I never see it again. Yeah. yeah. Um, wow. I was—I got to say—I was sort of interested in Sicario, and now, now I think it's—I'm bumping it down my list. Don't see it if you want to improve your mood. Okay. Let's put it that way. Duly noted. Uh, the Gap does not report earnings until November nineteenth, but the company warned that falling sales at the namesake store Gap and Banana Republic are going to cut into third quarter profits uh, stock down today and you know what that's that's a phrase you could use for most of 2015 because this has been a really bad year for the gap and and it does not appear to be getting any better no and when you look when you stretch that time horizon out over the, over the past year the past five years and the past 10 years the gap has underperformed the S&P 500 so it really hasn't been a great long-term run for the company. There have been different stretches where the company and the stock have done okay or even outperformed, but uh, it's interesting. We had uh, Arthur Peck join as CEO in February of this year, and he previously headed up Gap. He was the president of Gap's growth, innovation, and digital segment. I thought it's interesting that that's actually a category at a company, and Gap could really use any of those three things right, right now. Uh, I mean, when you look at I, with Gap, you have to look at kind of long-term performance of the company, what management has done over the past five years. Uh, they've spent more than eight billion dollars buying back stock, so this company is still generating cash. A lot of that cash is just going to uh, buying back stock. The diluted share count has dropped 50 percent since 2010, and the stock has still underperformed since 2010. So you just kind of, for me, I, I see that how much money they're plowing back into share buybacks, and the stock is still underperforming. I kind of question, you know, isn't there a better way to return that capital to shareholders? Either investing in your brands, which are very clearly struggling, or you know, paying a dividend instead of buying back stock. There are a lot of different options for that cash, and I mean, Gap is still producing more than a billion dollars in free cash flow, so. There is still, you know, some things like with the company financially, but uh, management's decisions, I, I'm really questioning. Yeah, and I agree with David on all of that. One other point I would add is less maybe about Gap specifically, and more just kind of a, a bigger picture thought, which is that just in general, um, cool kills itself. And I feel like we've already seen this story with Gap before, but it's really just the idea that if a company's advantage is literally just to be fashionable. Or just to be cool, so fashion for the sake of fashion, um, that edge is just not going to hold like it never does. Um, because just once something is cool, everyone jumps on board, and in the fashion world, like once everything is cool, then it moves on. And so I think it's just kind of seeing that over and over again as Gap, with all of their different little brands underneath, just try to catch up, and then they're just right back to not being cool again. Well, and if you think back to when this company was at its strongest, it was 
in part because it was a ve- it had great leadership. It had very strong operations because any apparel retailer is going to have to deal with inventory management and and all that sort of thing. But also, it had this it had this really great pipeline that it set up. When you think about the life stages that a person goes through, they had Baby Gap, Gap, Old Navy, Banana Republic. And if you think about it, just someone who is, you know, maybe in their maybe a teenager, they're going to shop at Old Navy or something like that. And then they get a little bit older, maybe they're shopping at Gap. Mm-hmm. They become a young professional. They're shopping at Banana Republic, more fashionable clothes. Then if they get married and have kids, they're shopping at Baby Gap, and then they're buying, you know. Yeah. And so it it really was set up as this: we can have customers not just for a five year period. We can theoretically have customers for a thirty or forty year period. Mm-hmm. But as you said, Aaron, I mean the the more that they doubled that, and it really does seem like you go back 15 years or so, they really were trying to double down on cool mm-hmm. and fashion as opposed to just sort of being a reliable apparel retailer where you could get a, a decent value. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's at least part of where it started to go wrong for them. Yeah, I think you can kind of compare Gap, maybe Gap pre you know 2000 or something, to um, kind of a similar business model to Carter's, which you know provides you know. Baby apparel or apparel for toddlers—that's been a really reliable business for more than a century now. Uh, but I mean, fashion and retail are tricky enough businesses on their own. But when you combine those, I think it's really hard to have a sustainable mm-hmm. advantage there. And, and we're seeing that with Gap; the company's really struggling. Wayfair's third quarter revenue rose seventy-seven percent. Um, they're not profitable, but the loss is getting smaller. Mm-hmm. Uh, third straight quarter of. Uh, a narrower loss, and yet the stock down about ten percent. Is this just because? I don't know. Why is this? <laughs> oh, so, pre-market, the stock was actually up more like ten percent, and so being down ten percent is is because of something else. I'll get to that in a minute, but I'll, let me just kind of explain the quarter a little bit. So, um, I mean, as you said, revenue is up 77%, active customers up 60%, revenue per customer, average order value, those are each up about 10%. Um, it was a very impressive quarter. It was a very good quarter. And um, when it looks like they are not profitable, um, they actually are free cash flow po- positive. So um, they actually are generating um, a decent amount of cash. Um, there is one metric that I saw that I wish were a little better, and that is the the percentage of repeat customers out of the total customers. And so this clocked in at 55%, up from 50% a year ago. It's down a couple percent from last quarter, and this is important to Wayfair because it creates economic value in these repeat purchases. So it spends a pretty good chunk of money on customer acquisition, and so when people first buy, they don't really make much money. So it's really when people come back. Um, a second or third time where um, the cash flow starts piling up. And I wish that were a little better. But the real reason the stock is down 10% is because Whitney Tilson this morning published... Our good friend. Our our very good friend uh, published that um, Wayfair is the worst business model in the world and is (laughs) his largest short position, which I personally... Don't agree with. If the company is free cash flow positive and it's growing that at a pretty decent rate, it's not the worst business model in the world. But <laughs> I think you could me. find a worse business model. I'm just <laughs> going out on a limb there. Yeah. Uh, so for those unfamiliar, Whitney Tilson, probably best known 
recently for uh, being the person shorting lumber liquidators. He helped to push the story on 60 Minutes. Certainly, that did not work out well for lumber liquidators for a number of reasons. And, you know, tip of the cap to Whitney for that one. Mm-hmm. Um, a, lot a, lot, of pe- a lot more people now know what formaldehyde is than right. Whitney Tilson. <laughs> but, but, like, you know, like most investors, uh, his track record is not home run after home run. So, mm-hmm. I mean, but I think, you know, he's kind of got the hot hand right now. So I could see where that would, that would, and he's not the only one shorting Wayfair. I mean, this is, let's, yeah. let's be clear, this is an online home furnishings business. It is at the moment not profitable. And so there, there are going to be people betting against that, no matter what. But you know, as you said, and as I indicated at the top, all the numbers appear to be going in the right mm-hmm. direction. Um, you know, I get the the repeat, the repeat purchase uh, customers is higher year over year, but slightly lower quarter over quarter. But I don't know. I I I feel like. Uh, Feel like Whitney might be taking a bath on this one a year from now. Who knows? Yeah, we'll see. And um, in in his long article, he uh, to me when I read it, it seemed like half of the article was about lumber liquidators. So there is a lot of <laughs> so there is a lot of was, kind it of just, the, was it just you know at the top of a paragraph where there's a pullout quote or something? Was it just repeatedly him saying, "By the way, I'm the guy who called lumber liquidators"? Uh, yeah, get him out of that. It was a lot of support for saying why it was terrible and trying to pull it back into why Wayfair is terrible. Um, which kind of like after the first main part is like, by the way, just to be clear, Wayfair is not lumber liquidators. So it's like, oh well, thanks for yeah. <laughs> thanks for letting us all know. They don't have formaldehyde in their furnishings. <laughs> <laughs> well, they they have sold some that did, but they they kind of have moved wait past really, that. yeah yeah. The, the, there is like one because Wayfair has over seven thousand vendors, uh, and, and one of their vendors uh, had had some products that had formaldehyde. A, a New York Times reporter reached out to the company and said, hey, I think this vendor might have formaldehyde. First thing management did is just pull those products, but then Whitney Tilson is saying, "Oh, that's a sign." Since they had a vendor who had some you know, potentially sketchy products in terms of formaldehyde, and he said said that uh, uh, Wayfair's management was incompetent. It's like, well, I think they did the competent thing. They yeah. pulled the products as soon as right. they found out about it. I mean, the business model, uh, you know, it, the business, you know, cash flow positive, free cash flow positive mm-hmm. now. So I don't know. I, I feel like Whitney might be I, stretching a little bit here. I feel like that's. Um that's something that happens from time to time where and just to remove you know let's let's pull it away from wayfair for a second i feel like there are there are occasions where people are quick to blame management and what they're really blaming them for is failure to be clairvoyant it's you know it's like yeah there's there there, there is a difference between being completely asleep at the wheel and um, you know, you delegate some authority to some of your lieutenants, that sort of thing. Something slips through the cracks. In this mm-hmm. case, it's a, you know, we saw this last week with Chipotle. With, you know, they they have a food safety issue in the Pacific Northwest, and as soon as they find out about it, they act the way you would want a company to act. They basically shut everything down in that region. Um, so it sounds like Wayfair, you know, barring clairvoyance, they did the appropriate thing, which is just okay. Let's get rid of this stuff immediately. Yeah, and he compares them to Overstock.com too. Uh, I think that's part of his his thesis as well. But if you just look at the two businesses, they are similar, but they still are different. And Wayfair has much better economics. So, did Overstock actually carry inventory? Um, so, I feel like that's a key piece with with Wayfair because, like, I feel like if you're going to sell 
couches and like big honking furniture over the internet. Wafer's business model, I think, makes the most sense because they're not actually carrying much, if any, inventory. Like they're they're just kind of a middleman between all these independent vendors and suppliers, and they're connecting them to people who are shopping online. Like if you're gonna do you know sell stuff that's you know a thousand pounds or five hundred pounds, like. It seems like that's the way to do it, rather than having massive warehouse facilities where you're holding all that inventory. Last question on Wayfair, and then we'll wrap up. Has management given any guidance on when they believe they will be sustainably profitable? I feel like they. this is the type of business that could surprise people with a profitable quarter, in the way that Twitter did uh, last year. I mean, when Twitter, was it in, over the summer of 2014, or just in the wake of the summer, they had a profitable quarter, and the stock went nuts. Because nobody was expecting it, but I'm just curious if management has given any guidance on that. Um, I don't remember specifically. I'm sure they they have said something at one point, but to me, like to reiterate again, they are free cash flow positive, which to me is pretty much being profitable. And so mm-hmm. they aren't profitable from a gap perspective. But I mean, if they continue to scale this way, it will happen probably the next year or two. Uh, a couple of housekeeping notes before we wrap up. Uh, thank you. Uh, for those of you who have already written in, uh, as I mentioned yesterday, we uh, actually the three of us here at this table, Aaron, David, and I, are going to be doing uh, a couple of episodes of Market Foolery based on the topic of millennials and investing. Uh, the questions and suggestions are already rolling in, so please keep them coming. Marketfoolery at fool.com is our email address. That's marketfoolery at fool.com. Uh, whether you're a millennial or you're like me and you're older, but you're looking to get family and friends investing and you have questions or suggested topics, please fire away marketfoolery at fool.com. As I mentioned at the top, and thank you again to the listeners who encouraged me to go last night with Dan Boyd to the 930 Club to see Guar. Also, again, a couple of offers of tickets. So thank you, very generous. But uh, Dan Boyd, yes. First of all, good to see you. Um, because I'll be honest, you were you were t- tweeting a couple of photos last night. It looked like you were having a great time. Uh, Guar is the greatest show possible, <laughs> and everybody should go at least once. Yeah. Now you've been to a Guar concert before, yes? Yeah, this is my my thirteenth or fourteenth time at a well, Guar show. But I believe our friend and colleague Mark Reese, I believe it was his first time going. Uh, not only was it his first time going to see Guar, it was his first heavy metal concert of all time. And how, in your opinion, and since he's not here, we can say whatever we want about him. How did he do? Oh, he did great. Uh, I didn't. He ha- he showed up late because he had to. Uh, he was like running trivia or something last night at a bar. And so he showed up late, and so after the show, he found me because uh, I was all the way up at the front, and we're both covered in fake blood. <laughs> that's when that that's when that picture happened that you can see on the Market Foolery Twitter. Yeah, definitely. Whether you're on Twitter or not, just just go to twitter.com/slash/marketfoolery and and see our feed because yeah, I tweeted out the uh, the fantastic photo of Dan and Mark. At the concert, there are a couple of listeners there as well. So I don't know. I, it seems like, given that it's heavy metal music, it's not the type of concert that lends itself to polite conversation among uh, uh, attendees. So I'm, I'm guessing you didn't have well, the chance that, to talk I mean, to people about, like, hey, are you a Market Foolery listener? I don't think any of our, mem- our, mem- our listeners know what I look like. So yeah, there's that too. The other thing, yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad you had a good time. Yeah, I did. Thanks, Chris. 
Uh, all right, Aaron Bush, David Kretzman, thanks for being here, guys. Thanks, Chris. Thanks. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Thank you.